Good morning to everyone. And once again, welcome to the assembly of the church here. We're so thankful for everyone's presence. This has already been announced, whether you're a visitor or whether you're one who's back with us after not being able to be with us for some time, or whether you're someone that's here every time. We're thankful so much for everybody's presence. We're thankful for an opportunity to be together and to worship our God. If you're like me, then when you hear the word prodigal, the first thing you probably think of is Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 15 and the parable we often call the parable of the prodigal son. In fact, to be honest, I don't know if I've ever used the word prodigal other than referring to the prodigal son. It's one of those words, that's the only time I've ever heard it. It's probably the only time I've ever used it. And if you would have asked me some time ago to explain or even define the word prodigal, I would have probably had a little bit of a difficult time telling you exactly what that word meant. It's just the way you describe the prodigal son. But what does that mean? Well, the word prodigal is uh, used in the New King James Version to describe the way in which the son lived. If you remember the younger son, there's a man that Jesus tells about that has two sons. And the younger son demands that his father give him his inheritance now. He doesn't want to wait till later. He wants his inheritance now, and he demands that. And for some reason, the father gives it to him. And then it says in verse 13 that not many days after, he gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Now, that's the only time that that word is used in the Greek, and as far as I know, in the English as well. And other translations translate that word prodigal, a little differently. Again, it's not a common word that we use. Other translations include words like reckless or foolish or wild or wasteful or wastefully. And that Greek word, that all those words or the word prodigal are appropriate translations. The Greek word that's used there means wastefully, senselessly, or recklessly. And thus, the word prodigal is an apt translation. One of the or one of the definitions of this word prodigal, that's an adjective, is spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. And so that's an accurate description of the way that the younger son was living and spending the inheritance that his father had given him. But what I learned recently was that like many words, prodigal is one of those words that actually has multiple meanings. I was clued into this when I was reading a book, um, and the author was talking about some ways in which Christians should be living, some ways in which we should be able to be seen by the world, to be followers of Christ and children of God. And he made a comment along the lines that we should be known for prodigal living and for prodigal love. And that sounded very strange to me. I thought, well, prodigal is a bad thing. Surely we don't want to be known as prodigals, and surely that won't help people see that we're God's children. And so I thought something doesn't add up here, so I need to go look this up. And sure enough, there is another way that you can use the word prodigal, and it's related to the first, but another way that you can think of prodigal is having or giving something on a lavish scale. So you see, one of those has a negative connotation. When you think of the way that you use your resources, whether it's your time, your money, whatever it might be, you can certainly be wasteful. You can be reckless with the way that you use those things. And in that sense, you could be said to be prodigal. That would be a negative thing to be wasteful. But also, that can be a positive attribute. 
when you use your resources, again, be it your time, your money, your talent, whatever it is, and you give them in good ways, you lavish them on others, you're generous, you're abundant with the use of those things, not for selfish reasons, but towards and for others, you can call that prodigal. You can call that prodigality. And that would be a good thing and a positive thing. And as I thought about that concept that prodigal doesn't have to be wasteful, but that it can be generous, abundant, lavish, and even excessive in good and righteous ways, I thought even though Jesus doesn't use that word specifically, Jesus' parable of the lost son actually contrasts two forms of prodigal natures. Because we have the son, the younger son who is representative of us, who has taken and squandered and wastefully used the resources and the gifts of his father. But on the other end of the spectrum, we have a picture of the father. And while we often focus on the son, and there's a reason we should oftentimes, we see some wonderful lessons about the father, who of course in this parable represents unto us our heavenly father. And we see in a positive, righteous way, a prodigal nature of the father. And so for a little while this morning, I want to consider the prodigal father and the good ways, the right ways in which the father in this parable and in life in general is lavish and extravagant and abundant in the things that he does and gives to his children. Well, first of all, as we consider the story of the prodigal son, I think that we see a prodigal nature in the father and the freedom that he gives to his son. Now this story may catch us off guards immediately because as you open up and you begin reading Luke 15 and you begin there in verse 11 and we're told that there was a man who had two sons and verse 12 says, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me and he divided his property between them. Now to me this sounds like a rebellious son, um, a disrespectful son, a son that is very selfish. He doesn't want to wait. In fact, he looks at this inheritance as his right. Now, we understand inheritances. Parents often try to save up for retirement and for their latter years. But also, I think it's the goal of most people to be able to have saved up and paid things off so that when they pass on, they have something to give to those that they leave behind. I think we all would love the idea of leaving something for our children, an inheritance that can help them and bless them. Now, when you think about an inheritance, there is nothing earned in an inheritance. It's the parents. It's those who have worked for that money and the savings. They've put in the work and the labor to earn that money. They've practiced the discipline to pay off debt and to save that money. And then they simply give it to the child. That's not earned. It's not owed, even though I know it's so common in some ways that children often think that they're owed that inheritance. We're not owed anything like that from our parents. And yet it's something that we do lovingly. And yet this son just thought that was his right. He just thought he should be able to demand that of his father. And amazingly, the father granted it to him. And not only did he go ahead and grant him his portion of the inheritance, but he allowed his son the freedom to use it the way that he chose. Now, I can maybe imagine if the father would have said, okay, son, I'll give this to you, 
But here's the stipulations. You've got to use it this way, and you've got to save so much, and you have to do this, and you can't do that. But the Father doesn't do that. The Father doesn't control the Son. The Father gave the Son freedom. Now, within that freedom, there was a great risk. There was the risk of the Son misusing that freedom. And, of course, the Son absolutely did that. He abused the freedom and the gifts that His Father had given to Him. But the Father, instead of controlling the Son, realized that His Son had to make His own choices. And thus, He lovingly granted Him freedom. And Now, I think that if we step back and think about this, we recognize that the granting of freedom is true love. When we're parents, we recognize that there's a time when we must practice control and oversight. We don't give a brand new baby absolute freedom. We don't give an eight-year-old absolute freedom. And while we're not there yet, I highly doubt that when our children, uh, God willing to reach this age, are 16 and 17, I hope and doubt that we will give them absolute freedom. But our responsibility as parents is to continue to train our children because there is coming a day, and for some parents in this audience, this day has already come, and you know this well, that we no longer practice control and we must allow them to be free to make their own choices. Now, if we're loving, we'll have done everything we can to prepare them for that and to equip them. But there comes a day when as loving parents, we allow them the freedom to be the adults that they are going to choose to be. You know, if we saw a man or a woman that was 25, 35, 50 years old, and they still had to ask permission from their parents to go places. They still had everything paid for by their parents. Their parents told them what they could do and what they couldn't do. Would we think, oh, what wonderful parents. What loving parents. Look at how much they care for their son. He's 50 and they're still taking care of him. We'd think those are some control freaks. Those people have some problems. They've never had their son or daughter. They've never taught them to mature. They've never trusted them. That's not very loving. We recognize that loving grants freedom. And there's a risk in that. Because as parents, one of the reasons it's hard to even imagine at my stage, and I'm sure for those of you who have had to go through this, one of the reasons it's scary to grant freedom is because problems can happen. Because we recognize children can make foolish choices. They can even make harmful choices. And we recognize that there's a risk that they can hurt themselves. And if we're honest, there's a risk that our hearts can be broken by their foolish choices. That's the exact same choice that this father made. He knew his son could make foolish choices, and he knew that it would hurt him if he did. But he loved his son, and thus he gave him great freedom. Well, what's the purpose of all this? Well, I think this is a perfect picture of our Heavenly Father and what He has done for us. From the very beginning of time, God has given mankind what He needs to know to responsibly handle free will. But God has given His creation free will. He has given mankind the freedom to return His love or the freedom to spurn God's love. Now this, of course, posed a great risk. It posed the risk that man might abuse that free will, that he might rebel against God, that he might choose a different way. It risked abusing God's loving kindness. And of course, that's exactly what mankind has done. 
And we can't just point the finger at Eve or at Adam or every one of us who have lived long enough and reached an age old enough to understand right from wrong. If we've lived very long in that state, we too have made that choice. We too have been given free will and all of us at one time or another have used that free will, the freedom that God gave us in sinful ways. God risked his own emotions, you might say. It would have been easier for God to have not created man or to create man as perfectly obedient and not be able to break his heart and to rebel against him. But how loving would that have been? Now, God risked his own feelings by creating us as truly free moral agents because God is love. He desired a truly loving relationship in which we could choose to obey him. And he has lavished us with freedom. The question, what do we do with that freedom? We must recognize that with such freedom, there can come great consequences. But herein, I believe, is also another gift. You know, the father in the parable not only allowed his son to take the inheritance, but he also allowed his son to face the consequences of his choices. Had the father not given the son the inheritance... Had the father not allowed the son to do anything he chose with it, then his son may well not have ended up starving and wishing to eat the food with the pigs. He may not have ended up there in the muck and the grime of the pigsty with those filthy animals. But when the father gave his son freedom, he also gave his son the gift of consequences. He did not step in and rescue his son. He let the son face the hard consequences of foolish choices. And that taught the son a very valuable lesson. Had the, son, had the father stepped in before this man reached rock bottom, do you think he would have come to the conclusion, I am not worthy to even be called a son. I will go back and see if I can even be just a servant in my father's house. I doubt it. It probably would have reinforced the false notion that he was owed something by his father. But his father, as painful as it must have been, if his father knew about this, and I can only imagine, given the nature of the parable, that the father is supposed to know to some degree the troubles his son has earned for himself, it must have pained the father to see his son suffering the consequences of his evil choices. But he knew his son had to suffer those things if he were going to learn what he needed to learn. And you know God has given us freedom. But God also allows us to frequently face the consequences of the choices that we make. God does not simply intervene every time we make a sinful choice to save us from every consequence. And we should be thankful for that. It may be hard to be thankful for that but we should. Our brother David uh, prayed and thanked God this morning for the trials that we face. Not all trials are the result of sinful choices but some of them are. And when we face the consequences for our evil choices, it should remind us all the more of how glorious God's love really is. Because God has intervened. God has done what we could not do. He has paid for our sin. He has released that debt that we could never repay. But to help us learn to love that and to pre appreciate that and to come back to Him in trusting obedience, God does allow us to face the consequences of our life from time to time. And we should be thankful for that. But we should also be wise enough to learn. 
for all of the younger son's problems and faults. There is a great nature about this man because he was willing to learn. And when he sat there in the pigsty, wishing he could even eat the pods that the pigs ate, instead of stubbornly continuing his rebellion, instead of blaming his father, instead of blaming his friends that had left him, he confessed his own fault, he recognized his guilt, and he returned to the father. And as he returns, we see another great attribute of the father's prodigality, of his excessive lavishness, and that is in his compassion. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of this father, this father of the parable. Let's say that you had worked hard through your life, you're advancing maybe your years of retirement, and you've saved up, whether it be a small sum or a great sum, whatever it is, and your son or your daughter comes to you and they say, you know what, we don't want to wait for you to pass away. We really would like our inheritance now. And you say, okay, that might even be nice. I can get to see you spend it and I can see the blessing. And so you go ahead and give them all this hard-earned money. You've spent years, decades saving this. And they go out and maybe within a matter of hours or days or weeks at most, they go and they waste it. They use it in stupid ways, foolish ways, maybe even sinful, harmful ways. How would you feel? If they squandered what you had so generously given them. Well if you felt anger. You would be absolutely justified. It would even be understandable. If you felt a measure of resentment. And perhaps even bitterness. At being treated this way. But look at how the father in Jesus' parable responded. When his son returned. It says that he arose. This is the son and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now again, this is something that's not stated explicitly, but I believe it's inferred here. The fact that the father sees the son a long way off, I think indicates that the father is patiently and has been patiently waiting and hoping and watching for his son. That's the reason that way off down this road that I imagine that leads to the Father's house, he's able to see the speck that comes upon the horizon. And as he's maybe done every time he's seen a speck on that horizon, he's longingly and patiently waited as it comes closer and closer, hoping that it's his son. And then finally one day, it's not disappointment as he sees a messenger or a courier or someone else but he recognizes even at a great distance, that's my son. And instead of sitting there and thinking, it's about time that fool learned his lesson. Instead of thinking, you know what, I'm going to let him walk these last few walks. It'll be good for him to be taken down a couple of rungs on the ladder. The father gets up and he runs to his son. His son does not deserve this. But he runs to him. And instead of the first words being stern rebukes or angry responses, he embraces him. He kisses him. He holds him. Now again, he probably knows where his son has come from. And he is compassionate. Had the, had the son earned this compassion? Absolutely not. But the father is compassionate. There's a, a side note I want to make here as we talk about this father watching for his son. This is 
not really the thrust of the parable. I don't want to twist the parable, but I do in that picture see something that I know some need, and perhaps all of us will need at some point. I know there are parents who have children who have left the faith. I know that must be heartbreaking. It's one of my greatest fears that that may be something I face one day, and I hope and pray that it's not. But I want to say this word, I hope, of encouragement to you. Remember this father and emulate him. Don't give up on your children. Maybe it's been years since they've darkened the door of a church building. Maybe it's been decades since they've had a spiritual thought. But don't give up. Don't give up hope. Now, like the Father, you may not be able to go and bring them back as badly as you wish you could. But you can continue to pray. And you can continue to watch. And you can continue to hope. And you can be ready every single day to be the first to welcome them back with compassion and with love and forgiveness the moment they decide to return home to the Lord. But back to the Father in our parable. He isn't cruel or even stern. He has every right to be angry and to rebuke the Son, to punish Him. But instead He is relieved to see the Son alive. And He has compassion on His Son's situation. And so it is with God. Even though we have broken His heart through sin, God is abundantly compassionate with us. Now, God is not going to force us to repent. He's not going to reach down and pull us out of the pigsty against our will. But as soon as we are ready to repent, as soon as we are ready to turn back to Him, God is willing and ready to meet us there. You ever thought about just how wonderful that is? Sometimes the way we treat forgiveness is when we've been wronged, we feel like the person has to, you know, maybe take a couple of steps to prove their repentance before we'll forgive them. Now, God requires us to repent, and God requires us to change. But the beauty of God's love and His compassion is that He will meet us where we are and forgive us before we've proven ourselves, before we've taken, you know, before we've spent a week or a month or a year proving that we're truly ready to repent. God forgives us. The alcoholic, the drug addict, doesn't have to have completed his 12-step program before God is willing to forgive. The adulterer doesn't have to have won back the love of those he's hurt before God is willing to forgive. The liar doesn't have to have proved to everybody that he's finally honest before God is willing to forgive. Now, don't take this the wrong way. That's not saying you can continue in those things. But praise be to God that He is willing to forgive us. He is willing to come to us, to run to us in forgiveness. And our response should be to throw those things away and prove from that day forward that we truly have changed and we're ready to be in the Father's house once again. But our sin does anger God, but it also saddens Him. He wants us to know Him. He wants us to live with Him. And thus, even though we have rebelled and sinned against Him, He has made a way for us to be saved. And if we will come to Him, He is ready to come to us in compassion and forgiveness. But something else that exudes from the father of this parable is joy. 
As I've already mentioned, we can imagine this father being angry. But we could probably also imagine him being relieved. As angry as he may have been, surely we all recognize the relief a parent would feel at knowing their child is all right, especially if we've known that they've been living in a way that could endanger their well-being. But the father's emotion goes far beyond simple relief that's then soon replaced with anger once he's glad that his son's at least alive. What we see instead is expressed abundant joy. Multiple times we find the word celebrate. When the son comes back and the father embraces him, and it seems like the son maybe you can imagine he's taken off guard for a bit as the father has embraced him and is kissing him and perhaps crying tears of joy at seeing him. But the son, all the way from the pigsty, has been practicing this speech. It's what he's made up in his mind, and he's going to get through it. And he says, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Let me be like one of the hired servants. And the father just doesn't even acknowledge this statement. He calls one of the servants and he says, Come, he says, Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. This is a time of joy. He says, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And the, the celebration is described a little bit. When the older brother comes back, it says that when he's coming, he hears music and he hears dancing. Now, what's this a picture of? We've got feasting and music and dancing. There is excessive, abundant joy. This is far beyond simple relief. There is no residual anger. There is no getting back, getting even, even though that, again, would almost seem fair. There is simple joy. And when the son asks the father about this again, he says, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. I think this is perhaps the key verse in some ways of Luke 15. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad about what? About the repentance of sinners. In fact, if you look at the context of this parable, if you go all the way back to the opening verses of Luke 15, what is it? The Pharisees have been grumbling because those old tax collectors and sinners are coming to Jesus. Now, they wouldn't have the gall to come to the Pharisees. They would know better than that. But this Jesus fellow, he's allowing it. They're willing to come to him, and he's receiving them. He's even sitting down and eating with these people. They can't believe it. And what does Jesus do? Jesus responds with three parables. First of all, he tells the parable of the lost sheep, a sheep that wanders off, and the shepherd goes and brings it back. And how does that parable end? Jesus says that the shepherd would throw a great feast. And he says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I'm going to tell you something right there. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. The parable or this fact. It really doesn't. Maybe it's that I wouldn't be a very good shepherd of real sheep. But in my thought, if all you lost was one sheep, that's not too bad. Saving 99%, that's pretty good. I certainly don't think that I would risk my life to go get killed and mauled by a bear or a lion for one silly sheep that had wandered off when I've got 99 that are safe at home. What's that tell us about God? That's the prodigal nature of God. Not in the wasteful way, in the abundant, excessive way. A way that it, that 
abounds more than what we might think logically reasonable. That's how much joy God gets when a wayward child comes back to him. In fact, the picture is God and the angels in heaven rejoicing and celebrating when a sinner turns from their evil ways. But Jesus wasn't done there. In in the next few verses, he tells the parable of the lost coin. A woman has misplaced a coin. It shows some negligence. I can't get off onto a sermon about all these parables, but I think they're all related. In the parable of lost sheep, we see someone who wanders off. And so we go and we help them back. And the lost coin, how is a coin lost? A coin doesn't wander off. It's the negligence of the owner. Now, sometimes the way that we act pushes people away. Sometimes people wander off because we have neglected them or abused them. And you know what we need to do when that happens? We need to stop everything. And we need to go do everything that we can to find them and bring them back. Because we bear some of the blame for them leaving anyway. But when that coin is found, what happens? The woman rejoices and she celebrates. And Jesus says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then Jesus launches into the lengthy parable of the lost son. And this pictures the joy, feasting, music, dancing, celebration. It is a prodigal joy. That fills the heart of God. The son of the spirit. Of the angelic realm. When sinners repent. And by the way. If you're a sinner today. I hope that encourages you to think. Very soberly and seriously about obeying God. You have it within your power. If you're a wayward child of God. Or if you're a sinner who's never obeyed the gospel. You have it within your power. To make heaven erupt in joyous celebration. That's a pretty amazing concept. We all like to make people laugh. We like to make people joyful. But I can't imagine a greater joy that you could bring. And I hope that you'll make that choice this morning. When we extend the invitation here in just a moment. But also with all of this we see a prodigal forgiveness. Tied Directly to the compassion and joy is the lavish forgiveness that the father grants. Again, the father could have demanded the son to repay that wasted inheritance. He could have demanded the son to work off the debt. He could have accepted the son's offer to be nothing more than a servant. But instead, the father forgives his son. And there's no indication in the parable that the son is required to repay what he has squandered and lost. The forgiveness here is a lavish reversal of status for the son. And that's indicated by the words. Notice, and this is repeated twice. It's said to the servant when the father explains why they're going to celebrate. And it's said to the other son, the older brother, when he explains why it was fitting to celebrate. Because he says his son, this man's brother, he says he was dead and is alive again. There is no, what's, now the son wasn't literally dead, so what's he saying? He is showing the complete reversal of status. It is as if the son were dead and gone. And now he is alive and present. There is no greater reversal of fortune that there can possibly be than going from being dead to alive. 
It's far greater than going from poor to rich, from unhealthy to healthy. It's the greatest change. And that's the change that happens when a sinner is forgiven by God. When a sinner believes in God and repents and obeys Him, he is taken out of spiritual death and separation, doomed to eternal suffering and torment, away from the presence of God, and he is given eternal life. That's what God's forgiveness does. It's abundant, it's excessive, it's lavish. It's far more than we deserve. He was lost and he is found. Now, when we choose the way of sin, we are lost. We have chosen the way of spiritual and eternal death. And God is not required to offer us forgiveness. He would be justified in letting us face the consequences of our rebellion. And yet instead he offers us forgiveness. He offers security instead of loss. And he offers life instead of death. We could never pay back or work off our sin debt. Just like this son was never going to be able to pay back what he had squandered. But God doesn't require us to do the impossible. He has done the impossible for us in giving His Son. He simply requires us to repent and obediently trust in and follow Him. And lastly, this isn't explicitly stated in the parable, but all of these attributes are tied to one obvious concept, and that is the Father's lavish love. It is His love that grants freedom in the first place. It is His love that moves Him to compassion. It is His love that bursts forth in joy when His Son safely returns. And it is His love that freely and completely forgives the Son. And truly, God's love is a prodigal love. Not wasteful or foolish, but lavish. Given in extreme abundance. Given in abundance beyond what we can comprehend. A love manifests in the fact that as John 3.16 says, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son for us so that we could have life. A love so excessive that Jesus literally left the throne room of heaven to live as a man. He emptied Himself. He exchanged eternal glorification for the fleshly tent of a mortal man. Lived perfectly obedient to the law. And then, although there was no sin in him, submitted himself and offered himself as a sacrifice to die on a cross. A love so grand that even after man spurned this love, God makes a way for us to be reconciled. Now, we parents should absolutely love our children prodigally, abundantly, lavishly. And hopefully those of us who are parents can understand the father in this parable and his desire to receive his son back simply because he loved him. Now if we can respect and understand that to some degree and our human frailty, just imagine how perfect and wonderful God's perfect love for us really is. I hope all of these things are encouraging and helpful for you this morning. But for just a few minutes as we end, I want to also remind us that as we respect and love and appreciate the prodigal nature of the Father, as His children, we should also be seeking to follow these attributes and these things. The Father's prodigal nature should remind us of how we should be living. And as we look at this parable, yes, we should be warned against the mistakes of the Son. 
we should be warned and we should learn without having to experience these things. We should be warned against wasteful, foolish, reckless living with the resources and the gifts that God has given to us. But there are other lessons that we should learn. And that is to follow the example of the Father. Now yes, when we find ourselves in sin, we should follow the example of the Son and return. But there are ways in which we can follow the Father's example. While avoiding wasteful living, are we ready to follow the good prodigal living of the Father? As we've already mentioned, the freedom. God has blessed us with freedom. But how do we use that freedom? The best way for you and I to use the freedom that God has given to us, and this may seem counterintuitive, but it is to serve. That's, I think that's one of the reasons Christianity is so hard for our culture. Because service and freedom don't go together, do they? We think of them as mutually exclusive. You can't serve and be free. And yet the best way to respond to the freedom that God has given us is to serve. To serve Him. To serve others. And just as God has given us excessive freedom, we give abundant and excessive service. That's the best way for us to respond to the great gift of freedom and free will that God has given us. But I also want to mention, we kind of alluded to this, I think tied in with God's freedom and that idea that He was waiting for His Son is the long-suffering of God. For God to give us the freedom, God has also had to practice a great deal of patience and long-suffering with His creation. And we should emulate that in our own lives. As we work with others, as we deal with others, one, we have many things for us to overcome, but as we encourage others, and maybe they don't come along as quickly as we'd like, or they do things that are frustrating and wrong, and we should rebuke them and correct them, but as we do, let us also be long-suffering. Let us never lose hope. As I mentioned earlier, let's always be like the Father, whether it's about our children or others. Let us always be ready to welcome the sinner back home. Always hoping for the sinner's repentance and obedience. Let us be prodigal in our compassion. How merciful are we? Well, if our Heavenly Father is merciful, we ought to be. In fact, Jesus said that, that exact thing, Luke 6.36. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And if God is prodigally merciful, you and I need to be as well. We may like to draw a line of how gracious we should be. But thank the Lord that God has not. And if that's true, then neither should we. Now to lavish mercy does not mean that we have to or should condone or tolerate sin. But it does mean that we are always looking for a way to help. Instead of looking to condemn, we are looking to save. By the way, we can reference the two previous parables of going and finding the sheep and finding lost coin. To help us with that idea. We are always ready to help save. We should be prodigal with joy. You know, Self-righteousness like that of the older brother. Causes us to judge others. Without really trying to help them overcome their sin. And remember the context of Luke 15. The Pharisees and the scribes couldn't believe Jesus would eat with people like tax collectors and sinners. You know righteousness will stand against sin. I hope we don't take the wrong lesson from this. It will rebuke sin, stand against sin. It will despise sin. 
But righteousness, as I mentioned just before, will also seek to help the sinner be saved. Now, it's easy to fall into this trap because the truth is we may find some measure of joy in feeling justified by the ability to point the finger at others who are in error. It makes us feel better and more secure when we see someone who's weaker than us, who's more sinful than us, who doesn't do as much as we do. I'm sure it made the older brother feel very secure in his standing to be able to always say, well, I'm not like that younger brother of mine. And it drove him crazy when that younger brother returned. And the father welcomed him back and celebrated his return. What are we like? What are we doing to find the lost sheep? What are we doing to find the coin that was misplaced by our negligence? Are we prayerfully awaiting the return of the lost? Or like the older brother, are we ready to write off sinners as hopeless? Are we happy to simply judge others in their sin? Or are we more attuned to the joy that results in sinners repenting and being forgiven? What brings us greater joy? The self-justification of feeling better than someone else? Or the joy of seeing a sinner come to God and be forgiven? And speaking of forgiveness, we should emulate the Father's prodigal forgiveness we tend to be overly paranoid, I think, of being taken advantage of. So we always say, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. You know, we have this concept that we've got to be so careful that we don't get run over, that people don't take advantage of us. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, you ought rather to be defrauded. Now there's a context there. People were taking their brothers and sisters to court. I'm not saying that we just always are taken advantage of, but we're so worried about it that we're very cautious about forgiving. I don't know. They used to say bad things about me. Well, they did this to me. They did that to me. And yes, trust has to be earned back over time, but forgiveness is granted freely, abundantly, and prodigally. Remember what Peter asked Jesus in Matthew 18. He said, Lord, how often must well, my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? That sounds pretty excessive. I'd get tired if a person came up to me seven times in one day, having done something wrong and asked for forgiveness. And translations vary on this. Some say uh, 70 times seven. Some say 77 times. I don't think the number there is what's important. It's the idea you don't stop. If your brother repents, you forgive him. You don't set conditions. You don't set limits. You don't say, you know what? I'm tired of this. I deserve better than this. God deserved better than this. But he prodigally forgives. And good for us, he does. But let's follow that example and be prodigally forgiving. Even after we've been hurt, after we may have every right to be angry and bitter, let us follow the path of lavish forgiveness. And of course, as the Father is loving, so should we be. God clearly loves us prodigally, but do we follow that example? Do we love Him prodigally? Be honest with yourself, and I need to be honest with myself. Can we really explain, define our love for the Father as abundant, as excessive, as prodigal. Not if we just go through the motions. Not if we're just checking off some boxes. Not if we're just doing the bare minimum that we can. 
That's not excessive. Parents, do you want your children to do the bare minimum in returning your love? Heidi and I have talked about this. I don't know why parents do this. You try and enjoy the, the moment you have and you, you're always worried still about the future. And we think we don't want our children to move away. We don't want them to be gone. And no parent does. We could all probably do better about giving our mothers a call and our fathers a call and spending time with them. And we as parents know we want that. How would you feel? How do you feel if this is how your children treat you? To barely speak to you. To just do what they have to, to keep a kind of keep a relationship. They've got their life that they're worried about and that's it. How would that feel? It'd be heartbreaking. Is that how we treat God? How often do we talk to Him? How often do we listen to Him? How often do we practice our love for Him and show our love for Him? Of course, there's other ways that our love can be prodigal. Our homes should be filled and overflowing with godly, righteous love. Our friendship should be based on love. Is our love for our church family, our brothers and sisters, excessive and lavish? Do we truly love the souls of others? How well do we love? How much do we love? Is our love anything like the prodigal love that God has shown to us? This parable, as we usually teach it, certainly contains warnings. Warnings against reckless living. Warnings against bitterness like that of the older brother. But it also masterfully provides a wonderful example of positive, godly, prodigal love and may we ever remember God's prodigal and lavish love and forgiveness and compassion and may we emulate those things in that very nature in our own lives and I hope that this lesson and this study has encouraged us to do that very thing well, as we bring the study to a close we have an opportunity to extend God's wonderful invitation to any who might be here and be at a guilty distance perhaps you're a sinner who's never obeyed God you have the opportunity to become his child. Or perhaps you're like the prodigal son, the lost son. And you've left the father. You've abused your free will. Even after having tasted of his goodness and you've left, it's time to come back. Now there is a warning here. God's not going to force that upon you. And as much as it absolutely would have broken the father's heart. If his son refused to come back home. He would have died in that pigsty. The father would have allowed the son. If he despised the father's blessing so much. He would not force his love upon him. And the same is true with your soul. God created you because he loves you and he wants a relationship with you because he wants to live with you forever. But if you so despise his goodness, if you so despise his love and his graciousness, if you so vigorously want to be apart from him, although it will break his heart, he will grant you that. And he will allow you to be separated from him. It's not going to be fun and it's not going to be good and it's not going to be easy. There may be a time that you get to live it up. But in eternity when God has granted you that separation. It will be far worse than a pigsty wishing you could eat some pods. 
It will be separation from God. And that place the Bible describes as hell. But you don't have to do that. Like the sun, you can come to your senses. And you can say, I'm going to return to the Father. And the blessed news, the great news of the gospel, is He's there and He's waiting and He's ready for you. He's ready for you to obey the gospel. And if you believe in His Son and are ready to repent of your sins and confess Jesus as the Son of God and be baptized for the remission of your sins, then He's ready to wash them away extravagantly, completely, absolutely, and bring you in. And imagine the joy there would be in heaven. Or if you're a Christian and you've left the faith, He's ready for you to come back home. All you need to do is confess those faults and ask for His forgiveness. And if you'd like us to pray with you and for you for that, then it would be our honor and our privilege to do so. So if there's someone here who needs to come to the Father, then we would invite you to do so while we stand and while we sing.